0: I'd like you to complete this sentence for me from your own experience. Uh, What would really make my joy complete is? I'd be really interested in some of your answers. Feel free to share them with me sometime. Perhaps uh, somebody would say something like this. Uh, What would really make my joy complete be? Win a million dollars what would really make my joy complete would be to finish this project that's been hanging over me for so long. Or what would really make my joy complete would be to have a full day, or maybe even you'd say a a full week with no responsibilities. Wouldn't that be great? I've heard moms sometimes say, what would really make me happy is if my kids would just get along. There are a couple of verses that come to my mind where an author of scripture completes that sentence. Uh, One of them is found in, in, um, yeah, is the Apostle John speaking in 3 John, and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. There's another one that we find right here in this text here. I think you might say the Apostle Paul completes that sentence in the verses that we look at today in Philippians chapter 2. And, And remember, Paul is writing to the congregation at Philippi because he's imprisoned, and, and he is unable to go and visit them. And, and you might think then what he would say would be, well, what would really make my joy complete would be to get out of prison. But he doesn't say that. There's something even more important on his heart. And, and so see if you catch it as we read through our text today. We'll be looking at chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 1 through 11. And I invite you to stand in reverence to God's word as we read that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Lord God, as we dig into this text today, we pray that you'd help us, that we would understand what was on the heart of Paul as he thought of the church at Philippi, and Lord, what is on your heart as well for, for each congregation of believers. Uh, speak to our hearts about that, and uh, our own relationship with you and with each other. We pray in Jesus name, Amen. Please be seated. You might have noticed that the uh, text started out with an if statement. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And that sentence is what is known as a condition of reality. What Paul is expressing is that there actually are these things. And so verse 1 could be translated really since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. And what Paul says here applies not only then to the Philippians, but to all Christians today as well, and so he is saying Really this, and since there is for each of us who are Christians, encouragement, encouragement in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, encouragement for all who are in Christ, because we stand forgiven of our sins, no longer than needing to fear the wrath of God on us who are sinners. And, And since there is also then for each of us comfort, comfort from the love of God the Father, comfort in knowing that our Heavenly Father cared so much for each one of us, that he sent his Son to be our Savior. And and since, also then, there is um, participation or or fellowship, the the Greek word here is koinonia, fellowship in the Holy Spirit. You you see, it's it's through the Holy Spirit that um, he, he draws us then into a personal relationship with God and also then draws believers together in fellowship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, since there are those things then, There's also, for each of us, as a result, affection. And and that word here is referring then to that God has put something in our hearts for each other. And, And also sympathy, which are then the tender feelings of compassion for each other that believers have as we watch each other go through difficulties in life. Since all of those things are ours as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, he says this, Therefore do two things. Therefore complete my joy and therefore have this mind. Now you might wonder how did I end up picking those two statements out of all those things that you see there in verses 2 to 5. Well, those two statements are imperative verbs in these verses. And as far as I can tell then the rest of the verbs in those in verses 2 through 5 are participle phrases. Now, I'm looking around and seeing some glazed-over looks coming to some of your eyes about now, uh, when I bring up grammatical terminology like that, and, and I understand that because the same thing happens to me when, when somebody starts talking math equations or, or science fiction, for instance, and I, I just am not interested, in, and I can't keep up with the explanation no matter how hard I try. So let me just say it in this way then. These two statements are the main thoughts, they are commands or request statements. He's saying, you complete my joy, and you have this mind. And all the other verb forms that you find in those verses, then modify those two. And in the English, then those are, are participles, which, which you might think of it in this way. They, they have often that I-N-G ending. And so when you look in the outline, you'll see that there as they all modify what's above it there. And Paul then requests to the Philippians, first of all, he says, complete my joy. What is the one thing that Paul believes will fill him up with joy? Not release from prison, though that certainly would be nice. And Paul hopes to get released and to go visit the Philippians sometime. But whether that happens or not, the one thing that Paul says will fill up his, him with joy is if they will be unified and be a harmonious congregation and he says fill up my joy by demonstrating unity in the congregation and how can they do that how how can we do that as well he starts out by saying by being of the same mind A, a mind that is set on jesus christ we christians have that in common you know, people in a congregation may disagree on all kinds of little things, like what color the walls of the carpet should be, or, or what to serve for the next meal here. Uh, maybe that's one reason we have potlucks, huh? You don't even have to agree on what to serve. Everybody just brings whatever they want. But we must all agree on Jesus Christ and what we believe about him. We are together then to set our minds on him. And Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. A love then that comes from Christ, which is an unconditional love and a commitment to each other who are part of the body of Christ. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and then he goes on to say, and being in full accord and of one mind. In full accord. That is, in having relationships with each other that are like harmonious music which involves in singing different parts that all sound good together voices singing in harmony reminds me of uh, just last week i had the privilege of being at the aflc pastors conference out at the ark in wisconsin and the uh, last night there we have a, a pastors and wives banquet and there were about uh, seventy pastors and a, and a few of their wives uh, singing together um, we, and we just sing hymns from memory and sing them a cappella and you hear various harmony parts and what a blessing it is to be a part of that choir as we sing together. a Beautiful thing to hear, but it, I believe it's more beautiful because we experience this level of unity of belief and purpose. That's what God desires to work in each Christian congregation, that we would be in one accord And of one mind. Then he goes on to say this, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that wording there, selfish ambition, I looked up and found this interesting explanation. Talked about party squabbles of those that are jockeying for position, place, and power. And ambition that has no concept of service, but only aims for profit and for power. And, you know, we see a lot of that in the political realm these days, maneuvering for, pop, for profit and for power. And Paul is saying that though that might be happening out there in the world and around us all of the time, there's no place for that in the church. Not one single thing is to be done in the congregation with that motivation. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And, and, and that word conceit, it refers to, then, people that are thinking so much of themselves, uh, pursuing personal glory, thinking higher of themselves than they ought to think, putting self up as superior over others, and, and therefore deserving of glory. And, and Paul goes on to say that we are not, we are not to do anything from selfishness or, or conceit, but rather we are to be counting others as more significant than yourselves. And that is interesting wording, isn't it? We might kind of like to scale that back a little bit, you know. Uh, consider others to be almost as significant as yourself. Or, or, or maybe, um, if we're really generous, uh, consider yourselves as significant as yourself. But that's not what Paul's saying here, is he? He's saying that in the context of the congregation, consider others more significant than yourself. Now, how is that possible? Well, there's a clue there in verse 3. He says, in humility, do this. Humility is, is lowly thinking. It's recognition of who we are in our own insufficiencies in self and the powerful sufficiency of God. I like how Lenski goes on to give us a picture here of what that looks like in a congregation. And he says this, and note how astonishingly, how astonishingly this works! As I consider you above, you likewise consider me above, and so all around. A marvelous community in which no one is looked down upon, but everyone is looked up to. The very need of the need of the needy then lifts them to receive greater consideration. Does that mean that we don't even consider our own needs and wants? No. But you know, that comes rather naturally, doesn't it? Our old nature is completely self-centered. And, and that's why Paul says here in verse 4, looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In every situation we face in the congregation, consideration of others is the shape, than our words and our actions. Now there you have it, then. A, a, a picture of what Paul says would make his joy complete as he sat there in prison. He would so love to hear that the Philippian congregation uh, of Christians are living in Christ, empowered in in harmony with each other, with no selfish ambition, but instead humble service to each other for the glory of God. There's the other imperative verb here. It comes up in verse 5, and he says this, Have this mind, or some translations say, Have this attitude, or have this mindset among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. And he's saying that because we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have been given then a new mindset, which we learn then from Jesus. And we are then empowered to live through him. So let's turn our eyes upon Jesus in these next verses here. What do we learn from his example? There are three things that stick out to me here. First of all, Jesus didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. There he was, equal with the Father from eternity past. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was willing to lay aside all of the glory of heaven and become human, and not only human, but, but born a helpless human baby, dependent on others for daily provision and sustenance as a child goes on to tell us that, that he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. He, he the one who created all things, so the one who was served by mankind and, and by angels as well, was willing to become the one who served. Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He, the all-powerful Son of God, then humbled himself by becoming obedient in all things. And verse 8 tells us just how far that took him then. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was willing to obey the Heavenly Father in everything he did on this earth. Not once did he disobey, and even when it meant being willing then to die. And this is something that our finite minds can't grasp. But the infinite Son of God obeyed to the point of dying. The immortal one died. Not because it was forced upon him, but because he willingly laid down his life for sinners. He did it for you and, and for me. He, appoint, he, he obeyed to the point of death on a cross a, a torturous death at the hands of Roman soldiers, a, a death normally reserved for, for convicted criminals. And, and there on the cross, the Bible tells us, the wrath of God on our sin was poured out on him for us. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn which, where he just marvels at the reality of that. The, the, the hymn is titled, And Can It Be? And, and verse 2 says this, He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Paul ends this section of Philippians 2 with what I call a, a grand crescendo concerning Jesus. And in music, a a crescendo is is a gradual increase in volume and intensity. And what Paul writes here, he, he takes us then to the peak, to the highest point concerning Jesus. And he says, therefore, because Jesus obeyed even to the point of death of dying on a cross, therefore God highly exalted him. God raised him from the dead, and he ascended back into heaven where we say in the creed, he sits on the right hand of God the Father. And there God bestowed on him then that the name that is above every name, as we sung about earlier today. So that the name of Jesus' knees should bow in worship. Which knees? Every knee of all humanity. Those, and it goes on to explain this here, those in heaven who have died and whose souls have gone to be with Jesus. Those who are still on earth, still living this earthly life. And and, and even those under the earth, those who have died, whose bodies are in the tombs awaiting the resurrection and judgment day. Someday every knee will bow before him. Someday every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. How much better to do that now, while we still have our breath, while we still have time left to live and to serve him. For the Apostle Paul, nothing could more complete his joy, he says, than to know that those that he had shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with, who had then come to personal faith in Jesus, were continuing to stand firm in their faith, and as they were doing so, were living in harmony, freely serving each other, living in such a way that people around them would see their love for each other, and would be pointed to Jesus. And that's still what brings joy to the Heavenly Father. May that be the case here at Maranatha and in Christian congregations all over the world. And the result is this, and it says, that God the Father is glorified. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's word to us, And to the folks at Pie. we thank you for the picture of the congregation that he gives us here and the relationships that are there with each other that, that are grounded in our personal faith in you, each and every one of us, and the love that you then put in our hearts for others and that result then in a willingness to serve and to sacrifice for others. Lord, help us that we would, as we live out our lives and live in a relationship uh, with you and with each other, that we would model that, Lord, and that the result would be, even as I've seen in this last week, examples of folks reaching out to and helping each other in this congregation. Lord, may you inspire all of us to live sacrificially for others in such a way that there many more would be drawn into your kingdom uh, we pray this in Jesus name amen